0: Hello and welcome to the Smart Cities World podcast. We're back after a brief hiatus with a brand new episode where I'm joined by Xavier Bryce, CEO of walking and cycling charity Sustrans to talk all things sustainable urban mobility. Hello Xavier, thank you very much indeed for joining me for the Smart Cities World podcast. Great to have you with us. Uh, before we dive into the bulk of the uh, conversation today it'd be great to get a quick introduction to you who you are your previous experience your 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 role at sustrans and, and what you're up to
1: sure hi luke it is great to be here so thank you very much for the for the invitation so why, why don't i start with me so i'm Xavier. I'm, I'm ceo of sustrans which is a uk-wide charity that makes it easy for people to walk and cycle i'll say a bit more about sustrans in a second but but me i I've always been passionate about transport, both from a kind of your typical transport geek point of view, but also the way that transport shapes our relationship to each other, in part to ourselves, and also to the world around us, not least the environment. And this goes, you know, right back, right back to when I was a child. And, and, and I think I've, I've been fortunate to sort of forge a career that, in, in transport. And before joining Sustrans as, as chief exec, um, getting on for six years ago, I spent 10 years at Transport for London and a whole variety of different roles. But one of the things I did there was um, develop a, a, a full walking cycling strategy for London in 2007 that proposed, for example, cycle superhighways, um, cycle hire, and, and many of the changes that are now in the ground and have been developed and made much better in recent years. So um, so, so after 10 years at TFL, I've, I've now moved, I moved to a UK-wide role. And so which brings me on to Sustrans. So Sustrans is a charity over 40 years old, um, and our mission is really simple. it's to make it easy for people to walk and cycle. That's in service of a bigger vision, which sort of takes me back to where I started, which is which is the idea that the way we travel should create should create healthier places and happier lives for everyone. and it doesn't always do that currently, but it could because actually travel, you know, getting around is actually part of what makes us human, and so I think there's a sort of a, it's absolutely integral to who we are. And Sustrans and me personally want to make that better for all of us.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. It's it's really interesting because I don't think until you start having conversations like this with um, with people in the industry, such as yourself, that certainly from a kind of public um, perspective, I don't think we appreciate. Quite how important transportation is in mm. in our everyday lives. Um, mm. It really take for granted the kind of connectivity that we we have in, especially in in urban areas. In in order to, like you say, to get around and, and treat that as a as a normal kind of human right, almost. Um, and you know, increasingly the emphasis uh, is around. For local authorities, for cities, for for suburbs, and in rural areas as well, the emphasis is increasingly on on how we do that more sustainably, which is mm-hmm. what we want to talk about specifically today. Um, so, why don't we kick off with you know how how we define the approach for for a more sustainable future for mobility? Because what we what we have is a real mix of different approaches with. Automotive, for example, um, hailing electric vehicles as, as a solution when really it's it's part of a solution but not the be all and end all. We we have associations and organisations such as Sustrans who who are looking to promote active travel, um, the use of public transportation, and then we have a whole kind of startup economy around micro mobility, shared mobility, and micro transit, which. Is looking to kind of disrupt this, this whole scene, this whole industry, to take a much more technology-led approach. You know, what's what's your view on the need to to have a better mix of all of those different things to really define uh, a path forward for mobility? Yeah, it's
1: certainly it's a really rich environment out there, isn't it? And you know, mobility, which is like the hip way of talking about transport, really mm. at, at heart, a lot of the times is 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 a really exciting space. Um, I guess technology has always underpinned transport, going back to the revolution brought along by the railways, which was absolutely transformative. First of all, in the UK, and, and then and then out across across most of the world. So, I think I think technology and transport is not a new thing. Technology, you know, the, the railways used to be the absolute cutting edge, with a similar kind of you know you similar stock market impact and 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 all the rest so i think that i i think transport and tech have always been close bedfellows i suppose i'd i'd start by by going back to, to mobility and transport in that fundamentally you know transport is something that we do we do in order to get somewhere else yeah and so I think that we really need to ask the question, rather than, for example, how do we enable all these different types of technology, which is a question which, which is often where things start, um, we need to be asking how do we want to live, which as a charity we're in the luxurious position to be able to ask that. But I'd argue that that public policy and decision makers need to be asking that too. We should all be asking that, shouldn't we? How do we want to live? And therefore, how does transport need to what how what sort of transport do we need in order to be able to live well together? And in order to be able to live sustainably? And I think that's got to be our starting point. So I'd startly reframe the question by asking that first. And I think once you go there and, and let's stick to the city context, you end up with some pretty basic stuff. So um, so one thing that COVID showed is 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 the impact of not being able to travel and not being able to make those connections in person. And the accidental connections that come from being close to people and, and come from being especially in a town or a city and bumping into people on new experiences. So there's something about ensuring that our urban spaces can enable people to be social, can bring us together as people, which sounds blindingly obvious, but it's worth saying because you know, when you build a six-lane motorway through a neighbourhood, which is what happened in the post-war period, it takes that away from so many people whilst giving others, you know, some option to do that in a particular way. So I, I, think, I think that's the first thing. Then, then it's other things like gr- we'd want green space, we'd want, we'd want fresh air, we'd want, we'd want we'd want access to open space. Again, these are all blindingly obvious things. But they're things that transport can and has, especially in the last 50 years, 70 years rather, really negatively impacted. So I'd sort of start with that question. And then, and then fundamentally, we need access to goods, to services, to the things we need to, 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 to make our lives work. And so rather than talk about mobility, I think it's more powerful to talk about proximity and being closer to those things we need. And of course, we're familiar that now with ideas like the 15-minute neighbourhood, the 20-minute neighbourhood. And I say neighbourhood, not city, because I think this is very much about neighbourhoods. And neighbourhoods can be in towns or, or indeed rural areas as well as cities. And, and so these these 15-minute, 20-minute neighbourhood ideas have really come to the fore in the last sort of two and a half years. And, and I think that there's a lot in that that goes back to the idea that most of what we need should be a short walk or a short cycle away, um, with other needs met through other modes of transport, um, and, and, incre- and, and I think we can increasingly live like that. Going back to technology, because you know when we talk about this, it's not just about you know e, e- scooters and um, electric bikes and driverless cars. It's also what we're doing now, which is talking over the air, over the internet. And so I think I think technology has a massive role to play in helping us move and live better together
0: yeah 100 percent. Like you say, you know it, it comes down to a, a more integrated approach and a more joined up approach to urban planning, urban redevelopment, whether it's mm-hmm. pedestrianization of, of kind of crowded areas and congested areas to improve air quality, improve mobility options and more active travel solutions. It comes back down to what cities and local authorities are planning more broadly than just transportation and making sure that they're taking an integrated approach to both of those things, because there's, there's no one solution on, you know, on either side of that, that is going to address every, every single issue uh, and unless there's collaboration, you know, at a public sector level. And at, I suppose at a private sector level as well, and kind of bringing all of those parties together to find solutions to a very common problem across cities towns and rural areas as well
1: yeah definitely and i think that you know we, we, that there is no person or organization that holds the key to this i think there's one fundamental bit which is the way that planning works and the way that we plan our places and and the, the dial is changing on that i think you know few people would argue that we need car centric planning but we we sometimes get car centric planning by default for a host of complex reasons um, especially outside of cities, you know, on fr- fringes of towns, because because it's, it's you know, let's take the car. It's not the, the car itself is not innately evil or wrong. You know, it's it can be hugely liberating, can be. Um, it, 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 it's, it, you can't uninvent the car. The issue with the car are the unintended consequences of it. And what's happened is we've, 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 we've arrived at a point, had arrived at a point where, where the default assumption was that everyone had a car and it was the car that was how we got around and how we did things. And and there's a famous theorist, I forget his name, who who referred to the fact that the the, the motor car creates journeys that only the motor car can actually serve. The sort of dispersed development that that you that you end up with in suburban and ex urban exurban regions. So so I think it you know, planning is really important. But yeah, going back to your, your point, Everyone's got to work together on this. And it's really good to see the amount of energy, all the different stakeholders at play, and um, and a recognition that, that, that it's a multi-mode multimodal future and it's not about one mode necessarily dominating over the other. Though, having said that, if you start from the premise that actually you know as, as human beings who are sort of, our bodies are programmed to move at walking speed running speed most if you start with the premise that things should be a walk away that's not a bad place to start i mean that's even reflected in the highway code now in in, in great britain with that with that road user hierarchy that puts that puts actually walkers
0: first yeah 100 percent. when we talk about sustainability that i suppose that the natural place to start is with the environmental impacts that mm. Transportation has, um, whether we're looking at uh, kind of fleets of vehicles, whether that's public transport or logistics and cargo, or or whether that's you know personally owned cars, Um, you know the transportation sector and industry has for years been one of the worst offenders when it comes to environmental pollution and detracting from from our air quality and overall, you know potentially the, the livability of our cities. Yeah, but. The The other side of, of that, in trying to find a solution to those problems, is attempting, and it's not something we've seen tons of success in so far, is establishing a sustainable business case for sustainable mobility as well. It's something that obviously, you know, cash-strapped kind of local authorities and transport authorities are really, really going to have to focus on if they're going to find the solutions that they need to within within budget and have those solutions become kind of self self sustaining on a financial basis. Now what what do you see from from your perspective in terms of the kind of sustainable mobility models and business models when we when we think about things like mobility as a service, often touted as this kind of future model for mobility, but so far, very few kind of successful rollouts of it.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a really it's an intriguing question, isn't it, Luke? I think I mean, there's a number of different ways to answer that. I guess the first one is is maybe sort of you know some of the facts around what is actually financially sustainable, economic, and what isn't, and and it's pretty clear that I mean you can go back to the the Eddington report written by the former um, the CEO of British Airways, who, who pointed out with a very, very strong evidence base um, that the that, that transport projects that are, that are of most economic value are small scale projects, not big infrastructure schemes, but small scale projects. But that's not often what is believed, number one. So for example, you know, going outside the UK, um, in Australia, Urbis Australia found that a curbside car parking space generates $950 for the local economy, but the same space given over to cycles generates $1,700 for the for the local economy. Um, and and so there's and, and there's there's, lo- there's there's more evidence than that. I mean there's there, there's lots of evidence that small scale schemes that local that that are often lower cost anyway generate a higher financial return. The challenge is that the business cases, the underlying models that drive those business cases, the funding mechanisms, all of that are not set up for those. They're set up to evaluate different things. You know, we've been refining refining these, th- th- these business case models and transport models for decades, going back to that assumption that actually it's about big be it, be it public transport schemes or big road schemes. So there's something about the unpicking of that, which takes time, and factoring other aspects of value, not least, for example, carbon, which is still unpriced. So so I think there's something about the tools at disposal, which drive decision-making, and then the beliefs as well. So back to that car park versus bike park example. Across the world, it was the same across, You know, we experienced it in Sustrans across across the UK. Um, New York, when they were putting in cycle lanes, experienced it too, local business owners, Think that people drive to their um, to their shops. Actually, the major often the majority of revenue comes from people who are walking or using public transport or cycling. Um, and often, actually, that's because it's the business owner themselves that drives to work because they're driving maybe at odd hours and therefore they drive to work and they, they assume others do. So, so there's all sorts of cultural things bound up with that. So, I think there's that there, that there, there's there's needing to look sort of look at that and it, it's always hard because this is about change, yeah? So when you're changing things, the tools you've got, when you're facing a paradigm shift, which is what we are, the tools are from an old paradigm. So I think that makes it really challenging. So I think there's something here about being prepared to take a risk because if we keep using the same old tools to do different things, then we're, we're gonna get, you know, it's, it's not surprising it's not working and that, and that goes to financial and process tools as well. So. I think that's that's, that's that's a large part of the problem. The other one is is this whole question of sustainability. And I think if you look at sort of the, the cost, for example, of driving, so so that cost is is divided and borne out in many different ways, not just by the state, but by but by people, of course. And and the cost, for example, of living on an out of on on a, on a fringe estate where your only way to and from work is by car you know, that eats a massive amount of salary, but it's not hitting the public purse. It's hitting that private individual. So so if you like, often the, the full cost of that can be, can be masked when you're looking at something that actually provides better public benefit than, than where the cost is more, more diffuse across, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. I think across all of that is the need for, you know, city governments, local authorities, transport authorities to really follow the data and have better insight into people's, individuals' travel habits when they travel, how they travel and take a more bespoke approach based on what the data is telling them to enable them to make better decisions about about what they do. Like you said, with, with the curbside, you know, a curbside space is probably some of the most undervalued urban space that exists in terms of, you know, what we currently use it for compared to what its potential could be economically for, for cities and for, for local authorities. It's... It's uh, it's quite an odd situation to be kind of this far into what feels like a transportation revolution, and to still be having conversations around that kind of thing.
1: Definitely, Luke, and it's I mean back to sustainability and its widest sense, you know. So, so it is simply not an efficient use of space, especially when space is constrained. Um, in order to to have everyone going around in individual personalized metal boxes, just doesn't make sense. It's completely illogical, um, and so and yet if that unless you're pricing that space, unless there's a cost to it, it's hard to it's hard to limit that. As we've seen, for example, with the rise of ride-hailing apps and, and and the extra traffic and congestion that has brought to to cities like London here in the UK, but towns and cities across the UK, and 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 left unchecked, you know, congestion will be the self-limiting factor. So so going back to the economics of it, you've you've got to, I think the, the answer is to fund them, is to price that space because that's one of the key commodities you're dealing in, is that space. And so so I think there's a there's a very strong argument, and, and we're now reaching an inflection point with the transition from internal combustion to electric, where something's gonna have to be done around the taxation of, of road vehicles anyway. So so, and, and the logical thing to do is some sort of road pricing scheme. And, and we know it works. I mean, the evidence from London and the road user, road user charge in London, that led to a 15% drop in traffic overnight. Now, what happened after that is, you know, open to argument because you haven't got the counterfactual of what would have happened without it in place. But I think that few people would argue on sort of technical grounds, if you like, or against, against the logic of road user pricing. And, and I think that's got to be one of the key tools, not least for that curbside space, because one thing's clear, and, and Uber and the like have shown that the value of that curbside drop-off together with the huge increase in drop-off, drop-off de- in deliveries, that you've, you've got to be able to price this stuff because the, the market itself will not resolve it without some sort of pricing.
0: On, on the other side of, of the sustainability argument, outside of local governments uh, might be able to control... Um, although they will have a role inevitably, is public uptake of, of more sustainable mobility options. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is gradually becoming more a part of people's thinking, the their impact on the environment when they travel a certain way uh, and it is increasingly factoring into people's thinking before they travel, how they should do it, whether they should do it, based on the kind of green credentials of, of that decision. But how do you think we encourage more public uptake of, of sustainable mobility modes, whether that is, you know, purchasing an electric vehicle using more sustainable shared modes of, of transport? Do you see subsidies and incentives as as, as a route towards that?
1: I'd, I'd go to something different I and mean, we'll come to public to subsidies and mm. the rest. Um, and, I, and we can talk about pro- going back to price and the role of road pricing in that, I think, but, but so, so, such transmission is to make it easy for people to walk and cycle, and at it's kernel. That's because people we're not stupid. We tend to do what's easy, um, and and I think one of the best illustrations of this is there was a survey done in Copenhagen. I forget many years ago. Um, it might be done regularly though, and it was asking people why do you why do you cycle? Is it for your health? Is it because it's cheap? Because we know it's healthy. We know it's cheap. Is it for the environment? And the most popular answer was it was the easiest way to get around.
0: Mm.
1: It's not rocket science. If you want people to do something, make it easy. So you can encourage people to cycle because it's good for them, good for the environment. But fundamentally, if you want people to do one thing and not another, you need to make it hard for people to do the stuff you don't want them to do and easy to do the thing that you do want them to do. Therefore, make it harder for people to drive in cities and towns for short trips because there's a general consensus, that's not what we want people to do, and make it easy for people to walk or cycle. But if the town or city in question is full of roads, no cycle lanes, no joined up cycle lanes, the pavements are full of parked cars, guess what? People choose to drive. So it's, it's, and it really is that simple. It really, and when, when Chris Boardman was appointed um, Chair of um, Active Travel England, so the Walking Cycling Commissioner for England, I think it was tweeted out that his role was to to encourage people to walk or cycle, and he actually corrected the government tweet that had been put out about him and said, "No, it's not. It's to make it possible and make it make it possible to do that, because you can talk about encouraging people to do the right thing, but you can encourage people to kids, kids to cycle to school all you want. Kids want to cycle to school. If the parents are like, well, there's no safe for them to cycle. I'm not going to get my kids cycling to school. It doesn't happen because again, we're not stupid. It's so obvious, but it bears repeating. Like London, for example, like so." Why have we seen a doubling, a more than doubling of mode share of cycling in London, across London? You know, a massive concentration of that in, in central, inner London, in places that are more, you know, where, where the infrastructure has gone in. It's because there's been a load of, load of investment in infrastructure. You put in things like cycle superhighways, you make hire bikes, available. You, you put in all the things that are needed to make that happen, including, yes, the training, the marketing campaigns, all of that, people will do it. But it's a bit like if we were sitting here thinking, how are we going to get people to drive cars? Maybe we should build some roads. It's a, it's a similar thing a lot of the time. It really is.
0: I mean, you would never question that statement, would you? Um, it's, you know, we are an impressionable bunch. Um, build it and they will come, uh, I suppose. It's... With a caveat, I
1: think, I think I'd say you build it, but you also promote it. So so if you look, you know, it, but promotion alone won't do it you know so I think it's the conditions have got to be there and I mean COVID's a great example isn't it so let's go back to the first lockdown in the summer of 2020 across the UK urban rural you saw people of all you know people of all backgrounds getting bikes out of sheds where they had them there was a shortage you couldn't buy bikes um, because people were cycling why were they doing it because there was no traffic yeah Fundamentally there was no traffic. So you know, if there was no traffic, you wouldn't need to build dedicated infrastructure. But there is traffic. Of course there's traffic. So so therefore you need the dedicated infrastructure. So I think and and, and I think that, that you need you need all of all of those things to come together. So to come back to incentives and incentives absolutely have a role and I wouldn't want to downplay that. And you need and you need especially to, to reach out to people who might not, for example, think that walking or cycling is to them or might not be aware that there's a bus service. So you've got to bring the full arsenal of things to bear but if you haven't got the basics then then forget it
0: coming back to your point about the pandemic i think it taught it taught us some kind of invaluable but inadvertent lessons in a way you know like you say there was no traffic more people were more mm-hmm. active they got their bikes out they went for walks because i suppose the situation in, increased the value uh, and made us made us realize the things that we were taking for granted at that at that time but also showed and demonstrated the effect that those things can have, you know, in improved air quality, less congestion. There's there's no question that um cities and, and built up areas became more livable during that period, at least from a you know, from a kind of urban space and yeah. transportation perspective. Um and in a way, it's it's a little disappointing to see how easily we've slipped back to to where we were. But also, there's there's something there for governments, local authorities to aim towards and to cling to. That the potential is there to to change people's mindsets um, by you know by doing some of the things that the, that you've mentioned. Um, and the investment in in infrastructure and in services is going to be critical if that shift is going to happen um the other thing i wanted to ask you around this is it's fairly uk specific but the kind of transport network in the uk is is pretty kind of um disjointed and decentralized and deregulated um do you think there's more of a role for kind of central government prescribing a more joined up approach for local authorities in in looking to encourage more sustainable transportation methods would you think that as as we've kind of seen with uh franchising efforts in in manchester and and several other kind of greater local authorities in, in the uk that it can be handled at that local level
1: I think, I think I'd be wary of prescribing a more joined up approach for local authorities. And I think that, I think, I think the example you gave of Manchester is a good one. So, so what, what you are see, what we're seeing is, is the rise and and the impact, the explicit empowerment of combined authorities, cities to, to take control of their transport. And that's a good thing. it's not complete. There, there are sort of there are different things, such as you know, transport of Greater Manchester, for example, doesn't have control of its road network or its strategic road network in the way that TFO in London does. So I think it's it's not perfect, but I would be wary of prescription because I, I'm not sure the record on on central government of prescribing what local authorities and regions and cities should do mm-hmm. is is a glorious one, and I think that you know, most people want to do the right thing. That you know, the argument is generally one that our towns and cities should not be car dominated, that we need decent public transport and that we need to be encouraging people to walk or cycle. And that's a very different story than we were when Sustrans was founded in in the late 70s, when the car was king and the car was the future and being on a bus was for losers. That, 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 at least in policy terms, is changing. And you're seeing that, interestingly, with a new generation, not just of leaders coming through, but especially, actually, of um, or political leaders, but actually of of directors of transport and environment in local authorities. Of you know, there are people now who who were not who were not educated and weren't in a culture where the car was king. So, in that sense, you know, what Sustrans has been advocating for forty years is now mainstream. And so, I think I would I would look to empower local authorities, empower combined authorities to do the right thing. Having said that, going back to planning, there are still things that need to be changed in planning. There's a national p- planning policy framework, and Sustrans will soon be publishing how we think that should be can be reformed to better integrate planning and transport policy at national, regional and local levels. And I think before prescribing what should happen, you know, locally, I think there's things that need sorting out nationally anyway. So we spoke talking about road pricing, where you know currently the government is is sort of being very quiet on the topic of road pricing where the Transport Select Committee has pointed out that, that it needs to, um, to, 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 to be looked at, that something needs to be done around road pricing and, and it needs to be looked at seriously. And so I think supporting local authorities to make bold moves to do the sorts of things that we're seeing, for example, in the West Midlands region where they're offering mobility credits for people who are prepared to scrap old, older cars that sort of thing should be encouraged, and because nobody's got a nobody's got a monopoly on what the right answer is, and I think there's value in in in, in local authorities, cities, regions trying things out, doing the right thing. Going back to this is a fast-moving area: the technology, mobility as a service, things like mobility credits, mobility hubs. I, I would be wary of too much central prescription.
0: I think you know it. It comes down to every city, every town has vastly different needs, even if they are. You know, generally pulling in the same direction towards more sustainable modes of transportation. The way they get there is going to have to be. It's going to have to be bespoke. It's going to have to be unique to to really fulfill the needs of citizens and residents in yeah. in in that space. And it well, you know, it should go without saying. Um, but in some places, it 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 feels muddled, <laughs> and uh, it's quite it it can be quite an odd thing to talk about the transportation industry and the policy and some of the development that goes with it um but i mean no, I, I i completely agree the the last thing i wanted to come to here was um was was really to ask about the role of organisations charities like sustrans in visualising and then then achieving this kind of future um and the importance of local authorities being part of a kind of wider network or wider supportive network to be able to learn lessons, find out and discover kind of best practices and, uh, and what that looks like for you.
1: Yeah, I guess this goes back to sort of where you started Luke, which is the rich variety of organizations, type of organization, number of organizations involved in the space. And I think that, so the role of a charity, well, I think we, we're not in this for. We don't have a profit to make. Um, mm. We don't need to be elected. So, um, so it's easy. It's easier for a charity to be to be a bit purist, maybe, and to talk as I as I talked about at the start about the question of how do we want to live. Um, we have an agenda to push. Of course, we you know we have our mission to make it easy for people to walk and cycle, but I think that means that that we can certainly point to. Best practice. We can join people up. We can we can share. So, and and one of the things that Sustrans does is is we we also deliver change on the ground. So we have designers, we have engineers, we 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 also we have behaviour change specialists who work with communities, local authorities, national government on some of this stuff. Often sort of some of the more so, so some of the, so some some of the more radical stuff sometimes, and some of the more experimental. We can experiment more, and so I think. Being able to speak from a position of delivery experience is also really useful. There are other organisations whose job is, if you like, to lobby for change, to push for change. And and, and and But we also deliver at Sustrans. And I think that that really helps. So, for example, the experience of delivering, of working to, to help deliver low-traffic neighbourhoods shows the, the absolute importance of genuine consultation with people on the ground, which which we didn't see enough of in 2020 when when a lot of the schemes were pushed through in part because of the need to get the funding out but or the need to make change happen quickly so so we can we we've we we can share our experience from that and we can learn from that and, and work with local authorities and communities and i think i think going back to people the role that charities can play is is help connect local authorities and help connect other providers and to to local communities you know charities are volu- voluntary organisations they have links in the community and fundamentally what we're talking about here is people. And so ensuring, and one thing that we're increasingly focusing on and, and, and concerned about at Sustrans is a lot of the inequity and inequality that poor transport decisions have bred over, over generations. And so ensuring that, that the advantage of new transport forms, of new, new ways of moving around are felt by everyone not just the more advantaged it's something where I think charities are uniquely placed to help with
0: it's an incredible kind of space to be in um with really kind of unique opportunities to to influence and help others to achieve achieve their goals their objectives um, in what is an absolutely critical aspect of you know of of everyone's everyone's life you know their ability to move is intrinsically linked to, to well-being and livability kind of indexes and it's it's such a huge part of uh of modern life that still needs an awful lot of work in the short medium and and long term ultimately
1: just just to dwell on that point there about sort of the impact of movement there's also that there's a really there's a growing body of evidence that we we need to move i don't mean we need to fly from london to sydney but but we need to actually move our big muscles. And it sounds so, so obvious, but we, and we need to actually physically move for our wellbeing. And, 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 and you know, every, that goes for everybody. Everybody needs to be able to move in a way that they can. And I think that so going back to the importance of walking here and the importance of designing places where most of what we need can just be a walk away and helping create those places I think once you start from that point of view, you're really starting to integrate this notion of mobility with well-being. So rather than how do we enable people to, to fly around in an air taxi, which I mean, the unintended consequences of which are quite staggering. And, you know, when you when you just start to think that through a little bit, but to, to thinking that actually rather than thinking there's a there's somehow, you know, movement necessarily has all these externalities, transport is going to have a negative impact. If you start to think from a win-win perspective, how do we actually design places that encourage movement and that make us move in a way that nurtures us as people and as society, you, you end up in quite different places and 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 places that, that are out there now, places that neighborhoods that are more walkable, neighborhoods that they get gentrified. And why do they get gentrified? Because they're nice places to live. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's an unfortunate, unintended side, it's side effect on one level, but it also speaks to that obvious point that, that places, the way you get to walk around and bump into people, build community cohesion, and they're nice places. And, and, it, it, and that's what we should be focusing on not how do we serve the very small minority of people who'll be able to afford to take an air taxi. <laughs> and let's face it, going on air taxis, it has to be a very small minority of the rich, because if everyone's going around in an air taxi, no one would want to live there, would they? It'd be horrendous. You know, if, you think, if we think cars have dominated our cities and made a mistake, let's not do the same thing with air taxis, but that's a different topic.
0: It It is. It is a different topic for another day. Um, but uh, for now, I'll, uh, I'll let you go. I've taken up Probably quite enough of your time for one day. But thank you very much indeed for for taking the time out to join me on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Um lots of really valuable insight there.
1: Thank you, Luke. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks again to Xavier for joining me on the podcast. It is always a pleasure to speak with people who have the obvious kind of passion that Xavier does for their work. And fantastic to get his thoughts on the potential routes forward for sustainable urban mobility as well. As we continue to emerge from the pandemic. His points about flipping the mobility equation on its head feel especially prescient. Everyone has been through a bit of a period of soul-searching in the last two years, and building public services around how people want to live should be front and centre, both in the minds of the public and private sectors. And we'll be back with another new episode in just a few weeks, but in the meantime, don't forget to become a subscriber wherever you get your podcasts, and for more on mobility, and much more besides... Become a Smart Cities World member for free at smartcitiesworld.net. See you on the next one.